weird because they seem to be a bit benign in the sense of they aren't hurting people in a sense of, you know, maiming them and then returning them or just discarding them somewhere in the ocean. They always seem to return them uh, without major problems. But obviously there is problems like what you have gone through. So many other people have gone through. Actually, uh, later today, I have another um, a podcast interview with a, uh, a hypnosis abduction therapist and she deals with this all the time and I, I need to pick her brain because I'm as fascinated with the abduction phenomenon as I am with anything else in ufology. I absolutely believe people that have had experiences hands down hundred percent don't know why but I always have and I think that it's happening on a daily basis. I think that it doesn't matter. Like you were explaining your childhood, not that great of a childhood, but it doesn't matter whether you've had a poor childhood or a good childhood or whatever your social situation is. When you get just picked for whatever reason, that's it. And it's all walks of life. I mean, there's doctors, there's movie producers in Hollywood for crying out loud. Um, there's people that are having these experiences and it doesn't matter where you're located in a high rise in a basement apartment doesn't matter it seems like they just you know that's a, the continuity that i hear out of all the stories you know even well, people I like think, yourself yeah i think the words that people choose are really important and when you choose a word like abduction which is a fairly accurate term it comes with implications and either you engage that or you don't everybody wants not everybody i shouldn't say that um there's a there's a contingent of people that would like to believe that this is all wonderful and, and that these exposures are really important and personal and that, that there's, there's a lot of goodness for everybody involved by, by them happening. And I, I, again, I think that's like whistling past the graveyard. Uh, we're not, that's not rational in, in the larger scope. A person can be made to feel about anything, about anything that's happened to them. You know, we're very malleable, subjective creatures and, and, uh, and we can be affected not only with psychologically, but we can be affected physiologically to feel and think that way about things. Um, I've done field research on sites where UAP recur. Uh, there's one I've been watching for about 15 years now, and, and I, it never fails to produce when I go there. And I went there with a guy named uh, Lester Velez, who runs Opus, which is a paranormal support group for uh, experiencers of various kinds and uh, involves a lot of psychology. Um, and Les and I stood in the presence of basically, it was a, like a carnival. It was, it was like the, uh, it's like that scene out of Close Encounters. Uh, but it's a place where these things happen. And, and it, this was about five years after I started NARCAP that I experienced that one. And so when people come to me, I, I'm very open to listening to what they have to tell me about it. And I'm, I'm very concerned about how they're doing, how they're coping with it. You know, how, how are you getting through your day? Because chances are, if they're on the phone, I can hear their, the nervousness, the, uh, the driven sensation that comes off a person that's hypervigilant, you know, yeah. um, I recognize it. And the, the, when you're trying to assess motives, when you can't even understand what it is you're looking at, um, you know, it just puts you in a difficult spot. It puts any, it would put anyone in a difficult spot. Um, are, are you familiar with uh, Erling Strand and his work at Hestel in Norway? I am not. No, I'm not. No. Um, I rec recommend you take a look. Hestelinproject.org, H-E-S-S-D-A-L-E-N, 
project.org. Uh, Erling, Erling is one of the, the few that I have a lot of respect for. He's been doing an instrumented study on a site there where UAP occur constantly. And he met me at this other site and he said it was like Hestelin on steroids. His, they did a joint study with an Italian team in 2000. It was the EMBLA study, 2000, 2001, two years they did it. And the lead on that was Dr. Massimo Teodorani, who's an astrophysicist and also a friend of mine. Um, both are field researchers. Both have been in these rarefied environments with UAP around them and had to keep their head while they collected data. Um, yeah, and, and it's been very interesting to be around them because Erling, on one hand, is an engineer and he's probably closer to a shaman than he, than he is a, a, a scientist. And then uh, Massimo, on the other hand, is a rock-hard Western school scientist. And, and I was talking to him. I said, so when you see UAP... How, how do you cope? And he says, I just get really cold and start walking towards it. And, uh, uh, it, and that's, I went from being somebody who, who, who wanted to be anywhere other than where they were to somebody who could walk towards them because of my exposure to these people and their, their fortitude, you know, their ability to adapt. They inspired me that I could adapt and that even though I could stand in the middle of a cloud of very unknown, weird stuff, I could, I could come out of it sane. And, that's kind of the first step. Uh, most people are ready to see some of the things that are seen, you know, and and I, I, I think that if you're going to bring objectivity and science to it, I, I, I walk an edge, right? On one hand, I'm sharing with you personal experience. And then on the other hand, I know that it's anecdote. I can't sell it. I can't. I, I don't talk about it. In fact, I've shared with you more than I've probably shared with anybody on the personal side. And that has to do with. Oh, wow. Thank that you. has well, it, it has to do with uh, um, realizations similar to the ones you're offering that that we have blind spots and that there are that there's a larger context and that that there has to be some leadership in this area uh, that's rational and experienced. And I try to walk that ground, and I encourage anybody else that's looking at research in this field or doing it to do the same. You know, respect the data, um, be stalwart, um, and and uh, be correct. And if you're wrong, own it and do it quick, you know. Do you have um, an example of a case that you mistakenly thought it was good? Like, were you ever faked out or hoaxed? Oh, I, I, I've been faked out on a number of cases. You know, I get down the road and, and sometimes I get quite a ways down the road before I, I, I realize there's a mundane explanation. I, I think the best, most recent example was a, a case that I got out of Europe. And we don't normally do European cases, but it involved a photograph and, and video. And, and it was pretty compelling. Uh, the, the witness was good. He's a safety officer, his airline, um, a, a, a regional carrier in, in, in Europe. And, uh, um, and it was fairly consistent with the case I did in Mexico in, in May or that happened in March. Um, and so we, we went down the path and I was able to divine that it was a technical device, that it was, it was had a plasma coded exterior, that it was giving off a, a short contrail that was kind of consistent with plasma being blown off of it and it was glowing. Uh, I concluded it was a technical device. The movement, um, the pilot, 19,000 hours of flight time, describes this thing. Um, he said there was a flash in front. They saw a contrail in the flash and then the thing was coming right at him. He thought it was a missile and was going to hit him. Then it did 180 at an impossible G that should have used aerobatic pilot too. He said it should have killed anybody that was in it and turned and 
paced his aircraft for a little bit and then boosted back uh, very quickly in the direction it came. And I, I was fairly convinced that we had a pretty good UAP case there. I wrote it all up and su suggested everybody look a little more closely at these things because of it. And uh, turns out it was a, a, the second stage of a Falcon 9 booster. Uh, and it was something it was new. It was something I hadn't thought about. You know, I knew that there had been a Falcon 9 launch that day, but the payload was nowhere near where these guys were. But I didn't think about uh, reusable boosters returning to their point of origin. And mm -hmm. and the mistake was that, that the distance in a clear sky is difficult to judge. And they thought it was right over them. They said the light was lighting up the interior of their cockpit, which is entirely possible, even though the thing was probably 40 miles above them or more. And uh, um, they were at 37,000 uh, uh, at that point, doing 500 miles an hour. And then when this thing turned on its boosters and left, it looked like it moved the way UAP are recorded to move. But the problem was distance. Um, new phenomena, new for the pilots, new for me. You know, and and that happens. And and if you if you you got to own it, and you own it quickly. And and I, I I in fact I gave a reference to James Oberg. He wrote a very good paper on it. Uh, on people mistaking the, the Falcon 9 booster for it. And he had photographs, which were very con convincing. And uh, uh, so you own it and you march on, you know. That doesn't explain what I saw in 1999 and why I had that experience and, or any of the other experiences I've had. Um, no, but see, some, somebody would look at that and say, see, if that was explained, then what you would have experienced can also be explained. Right, because in their rational or rationality is that they think, well, if one could be explained, then clearly, maybe you didn't see entities. You know what I mean? Like people always reason that out, right? Well, well, they they can, but then the other way to look at it is is you could say, for example, I mean, if you're asking about the veracity of pilots as reporters, you can say, oh, well, you know that we explained that one, so they get it wrong, and uh, but that's not true. He told me exactly what he saw, and he was as confused by it as I was. It was new, and the 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 fact, and we did all the work, and we were correct. It was a technical device. It was coated in plasma. It was on reentry. It, it it had you know it, everything that we determined about the thing was correct. It just had a mundane explanation at the end of it. The pilot was a good witness. He told me everything. I was I was as good a researcher as I could be. And and when I found out what the answer was, I didn't dwell on it anymore. I marched on, and because it doesn't explain everything. That, that's not rational. To say that you've explained one thing is not, and therefore everything is explainable, is not rational. That's uh, not, yeah, lo that's yeah, not logical. Yeah, yeah, and we face that all the time. All as the time. Psychologist. It's always like, well, if this was explained, then everything else can be. It's like, no, stop being an idiot. It's not like saying if right. you found one murderer, that there's no more murderers in the world. It's the equivalent. Like, right. like I said, we have a lot of blind spots and a lot of them have to do with how we broach subjects or how to just be because I'm blunt with people. I just tell them right to their face when they first have a smile on their face. They're like, oh, you believe in that stuff? I'm like, you damn right I am. And if you're paying any attention, you should be, too, um, because it, it, it's at that point where we need to be blunt with people saying, like, you know, you need a swift kick in your ass. Start paying attention to what's happening here. Um, my, my approach on that has been been to tell people not to be brittle. Uh, I, 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 you, you, may, you may think that you've got a handle on all of this, but and that's great. But don't be brittle in case you're wrong. Yeah. yeah you know, uh, I, I think that, that everybody's going through their own awareness training. 
you know, and, and it takes time to get them, um, get them on board to get their awareness to wake up and have their ability to observe objectively engaged, you know, and part of that wake up call is to remind people that, Hey, an answer for this doesn't answer that. And you know? it really like your job, like I found out that it, it was the rocket and until that point, it wasn't an identified object to the pilot. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but, and it was a safety factor. They were terrified. They thought they were either under fire or something almost hit them. Right. You know, you can hear it in, in, in the cockpit and that you can actually see the reflection of, of a pair of white knuckles on, on a, on a uh, control yoke, you know, reflected off the windscreen in the video. Right. Um, that's on our NARCAP YouTube site. Um, and have you had similar cases that were actually at that point unidentifiable that like something similar to be like something that huge that was unidentified? Like, Oh yeah. Still have. Yeah. Yeah. We have cases like that too. And we have other cases, for example, in our, in our list of technical reports, we have technical report 12 and that involves an airliner that's on approach to uh, San Jose airport. And it flew over a group of astronomers that were setting up on the, in the San Bruno Hills, which is on a coastal ridge uh, between the Bay and the, Pacific Ocean. So the airliner is coming eastbound over over the mountains to come down and land at uh, San Jose. So it's decelerating. Uh, land, landing speed is under 170 miles an hour, give or take. And they see this little ball of light well behind it. And they start clicking away with their um, eight megapixel camera. This was in 2005, which was, was quite a camera. And they started banging away on this thing. And it pulls up, it accelerates and pulls up underneath the tail of the aircraft, paces it for a ways, and then leaves at an acute angle. And they get it all in photographs. So we we go through the whole dance with the thing, and it holds up no matter what. It's not stars. It's not, it, it, there's only, it, 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 it's not anything other than what it appeared to be, which was a ball of light that pulled up under the tail of an airplane and left. There was no other explanation. I actually flipped it out there and let the, uh, the skeptics out there gnaw on it for a bit and they, they couldn't come back with anything any that they couldn't come back with any conclusion either other than to claim that the report was poorly written. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> and and so yeah, we we've got a couple of, you know, four out of five if you were gonna score them, you know, cases. But um but this really isn't about resolving it I, my organization isn't here to prove that aliens are visiting us it's here to continue documenting and to advocate for more research and for more um, um, attention by the aviation community and science in general and to give them enough stuff to go on so that they can start looking at it you know pilots have, have discovered all kinds of well not all kinds but they've discovered other phenomena that science just didn't agree with at all and, and they reported them for decades, and science would have nothing to do with it. And I'm referring to upward lightning, lightning that leaves the top of thunderheads and goes into space, jets, sprites, um, this kind of thing. And uh, for, for years, pilots reported this stuff, and the science community said, hey, lightning doesn't do that. And they never looked. And it took two kind of rogue atmospheric physicists and that collected anecdotes from pilots over over you know, a decade or so, one of them was a pilot himself. Um, so he could talk to people and take their reports. And then he ends up, uh, uh, they end up looking and, and the space shuttle videos of the, of thunderstorms and such over the 
planet revealed that, that yeah, indeed there was upward lightning. But 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 pilots were ignored. Here they were. They were witnesses. They were telling people what they were seeing, and yet the science community would wait for something more serendipitous to um, reveal the existence of blue jets and sprites. They they didn't have the part of the problem was they didn't have them on film. And another part of the problem was that they didn't have a vocabulary to describe them with. Right. But there's so a lot of things that we can't describe. Like your experience, I know you're describing to the best of your knowledge what you were seeing, but in reality, mm-hmm. you don't really have a comparison chart or anything to compare it to. No, no. Everything right. is like, it's like a ass. Exactly. You know? And I mentioned and that, that before. Yeah, I mentioned that before in another podcast. Yeah. Well, it's it's like a ass, but also, it, you know, mentioned Dr. Heineck earlier. He came up with the, the, the strangeness factor a way of scoring cases along a line of the cases that are most commonly reported. So you could tell what the main thrust of the reports were versus the outlier data. Uh, and he called that the strangeness factor. And the more higher, the strangeness factor, the less likely that it was the more likely that it was confabulated, you know, or that it was a misidentification of human or natural phenomena. And uh, uh, so it was his way of kind of like, you know, saying, okay, the, the, the broad scope of UAP reports fall into these general categories, you know, and anything that doesn't kind of is outlier. That's Bigelow Ranch, uh, his Skinwalker Ranch thing. That's outlier data. All of that stuff that goes on out there is, or that has been claimed to have gone on out there is uh, not, it's not really consistent with, with what ufology has been dealing with for the last 60 years. So, and, and you start, so you start learning how to spot, you know, what 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 is outlier versus what isn't um, and that guides you but you want to be careful that you don't get dogmatic about that and start throwing out things because you you know because be, uh, out of, out of uh, error you know um, well there's a few things that now i think ufologists gotta keep in mind because there's a few people out there I, for a while it was dr greer um and after that you have you know the pentagon ttsa uh, to the stars academy from Tom DeLonge and uh, Louis Elizondo. And then now you have, uh, you know, other, or like, you know, the Navy coming out. And so there's more momentum, but it's easy for us to fall into following one more than the other. And again, nobody has a comprehensive look here at, uh, you know, it's not like everybody has it pinned down to anything. So that's the problem that I face too, because I'll be watching, you know, everything that TTSA does. Uh, then I'll be looking at Jeremy um, uh, Campbell, is it? Or uh, I always mess up his last name, but the guy that interviewed uh, Bob Lazar and is always talking. Mm-hmm. With, uh, so it's very easy for me to just follow those paths. And it's like, oh, no, this is my source of information. Where in reality, I realize that that's where my pitfalls are. I'm like, no, I need to talk to people like yourself, right? You people need that to I don't get to hear it off as often, so. Well, pardon me for starting a sentence with you need, but you need to go. <laughs> no worries, yeah. You need, you, you need to go and have your own experiences and collect your own data. Yeah. That tra- trying to divine what's happening here through the through your internet connection is is an exercise in futility. Okay, uh, I don't know if you've ever met Doctor Greer, uh, but uh, I have not. No. His his uh, his team. Uh, they they have their little flashlight parties out there trying to attract UFOs and they claim a lot of success with this. And Dr. Haynes, my chief scientist, went out there and 
sat down with a, across the table from me and said, you know what, we didn't see anything. And he's never seen a UFO and he, he made great, he went through great pains to tell me that over the time that we were together. And, uh, uh, and yet Greer's team was saying that uh, indeed he had, that, that he saw UFOs out there and they just ran with it. They, 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 they used video of him in, in one of his, one of Greer's movies uh, uh, that, it did, and it was misconstrued. It didn't represent what Dick actually thought about all this. And I know because it was, we worked very close, almost daily, you know, for 15 years. Um, and so, and then when you find out, you go, well, what kind of experiences has Greer have? Because I'm looking for community, right? And I find out that, hey, wait a minute. He went jogging once and he found himself in a situation where he thought he was dealing with an alien. And that's his story. And, and then it changes. And then DeLong's the same way. He he, uh, he thinks maybe he was out on a campsite somewhere in uh, Joshua Tree or something, and they, they, they might have been abducted, you know. Uh, but if you dig a little further, he thinks that they're, they're Nazi artifacts. And then when you really look at the whole thing, it looks like a media rollout because there's really not a lot going on there. Even, even with the government um, deciding to look into – UAP and use our term. <laughs> I get a giggle every time I see it. <laughs> I have to say, but um, but even that, it's already going underground. The 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 ODNI is supposed to offer a report on it, and uh, that's going to be couched in in military reports, which are not going to be publicly available. That's what their task force is working on. And when it finally comes out, it's going to be an intelligence assessment on whether or not anybody is operating technology that we don't have in the United States and whether it's a threat to um, our military. And none of that is going to come out in public. Guarantee it. None of that's coming out. So if you want to sit around and wait for whistleblowers and try and divine what's going on with the phenomena through your computer, well, good luck. Um, I've been out in the field. I've sacrificed. I, I I, I've taken emails at three o'clock in the morning on Christmas. I've lost so much sleep because I've, I've been personally scarred by direct experience. I've gone and looked, you know, and and in going and look, I've seen things. And if that's true for me, I know it's true for others. I know other researchers that have good data. And it arises from the ability to go and get the data to decide what you're doing, how you're doing it. And then. And then go through the whole darn checklist of where you need to go and who you need to talk to to get get that information. And uh, don't rely on the Internet. Don't rely on what ufology is buzzing about today or tomorrow. That, that information is not helpful. You'll go if you, you can sit around and wait for whistleblowers. We've had hundreds of them. OK. And did it change anything? No. Where did the term disclosure come from? That's a ufology term. The government didn't come up with disclosure. And they made a whole cottage industry out of it while the government sat there like a sphinx and projected on, on, on a silent government, without a silent entity. Um, so if you really want to get to the truth of this thing and you've got personal experience, then you need to go get more. you got to face it yourself and go get it. And, uh, and, and for God's sakes, write it up. Write, write a, you know, write, write a darn paper, you know, posting a video on YouTube is useless. And I, and science and academics and me are not going to bother looking at it if you don't give it some context. If you don't respect what happened to you enough to write it out and to, to use all the, you know, you can use Google Maps now and go in a satellite view from ground level if you were a ground observer 
in just about anywhere where you see something and and you can uh, um, recreate that. You can take screenshots of, of, of the location and you can go into paint and, you know, draw up everything and you can measure distances and all the other stuff you need to do to actually write the thing up. Do that because the rest of this is useless and people like me aren't going to bother, even if it is compelling. And we did talk about this before on the podcast, but how important reputation is in ufology, like how quickly somebody can come along and then just ruin their credibility because of shoddy work. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's no question. Um, and they can ruin their credibility a number of ways. I, I, you know, you, you, uh, I, I've watched this over and over again, and, and that's part of the reason why I don't talk a lot about my personal experiences, other than to point out that that it makes a very sharp point on the spear, in terms of you know defending my pilot reporters and so on, the ones that have something to tell me, uh, and 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 it it, it it motivates me to be very careful about what I write and how I write it, who I write it for. Um, I'm not interested in in impressing ufology. I'm not interested in impressing anyone. I'm impressed. I'm interested in being correct and rational. And, and getting to the bottom of this in a way that, that, that I understand. Um, so, it, 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 I, and, and part of that is just divorcing yourself from ufology. We did our best work without having anything to do with ufology. Uh, the, the selfish nature of a lot of these organizations uh, made it very hard to find people that could actually work with you, much less had a compatible research philosophy, you know. We, we, we actually we, we had the first research agreement with an with an international government in 2010 I started having getting emails from Chilean Air Force generals and they have a research team in Chile called CEFAA, the Committee for the Study of Anomalous Aerial Phenomena and um, they approached us to formalize a research agreement with them which we did and we had a lot of problems because Generally, when you have a research agreement, you share your data with each other first and you come to a consensus about it before you go public because you have, it's not just your reputation, you know, there are other people involved, you know, and uh, uh, we had a lot of problems with that. We had a lot of, uh, we were dealing with military minds. These were, these were military teams that were inside their, sequestered in their air technical school, the, the military and the civil aviation functions of a lot of countries kind of overlap because they have limited facilities and they're not that big, you know? Um, so, but, but what we found was, you know, clashes with philosophy and so on. I told Dick fairly early on, I said, Dick, this isn't good for us. We should step back and he, he goes, you know, and people get, Oh, we have this research agreement with the government of Chile, you know, and we're going to be like this and um, nothing good came of it. We, we did a lot of work for them. They didn't do anything for us. And, and in the end, they killed their reputation with uh, uh, some public pronouncements that turned out to be mundane uh, cases. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, 2017 in January. No, I'm not familiar with that. You want Les, to Le, Leslie Keene came out with a big article on uh, regarding the Chilean Air Force and they had a case that they thought was lead, lead pipe cinch. And um, we had already resolved a year ago that it was an airliner on a few, making a fuel dump. And uh, she published that thing, and literally in a couple of hours, they had figured out where it was, what air, airplane it was, what flight it was, and then it was making a fuel dump. And and basically killed the credibility of the, of the team and, and, and her own. Then she, she got into ghosts, you know. Um, and I, 
know, and I, I worked, I mean, I was looking over photographs from like our original meetings and Leslie was there, you know, um, and she did a lot of good stuff for us, but, but all of a sudden one step too far and stepped in it and didn't own it, argued it, didn't own it, you know, and it's kind of hard to do when you've made an international newspaper and media spectacle out of it. Um, but you know, it, it could happen to the best of us. It's just, it that, can. just that, that moment lapse in judgment or mm-hmm. uh, just wanting something to be, mm-hmm. you know, because I think, you know, some people have made a career out of this, like Leslie's been at it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linda Moulton, how like mm-hmm. people like yourselves have been 20 plus years at some point you're like, Oh my God, you know, like maybe something's just going to snap one day and you think this is the Holy grail. This is an amazing one. No, you're not seeing it properly, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm afraid of for myself is to get caught up well, so this, much into it, right? This is the Buddhist mindfulness I was talking about, that ability to to clearly comprehend what, you know, objectively observe, clearly comprehend and act correctly on every phenomena that arises in your experience, morning to night and beyond. And all they're all equal, they're all the same. And are you paying attention? Uh, and because if, they're, if, if, you're, if you're objective, they are all equal and the same. A, a hummingbird going by is no different than a flying saucer. It's a phenomenon and it's part of your moment. And are you noticing it? And what are you noticing? And what what do you learn and deduce from it? And uh, uh, people will have a hard time with that. And, and, and I, I don't blame them. You know, it's traumatizing to see this stuff. And, and, and you go through just terrific contortions psychologically when you get close to them. And it, it, it's understandable that there, there's nobody filtering them before they go out into ufology and start babbling. And in the end, it, it doesn't do anybody much good. It doesn't do the field good. It doesn't help help the witness. Um, doesn't help humanity. So if we want to be correct and right about how we go at these things, then, then objectivity is the first part of it. And, and owning our own acti- actions is right in there with that. And then cultivating logic and rationality so that we – we aren't overlooking a phenomenon because we think we know it all. I, I have one more question uh, mm-hmm. to ask you, because uh, it's my curiosity. But when you saw those entities uh, very close to you, mm-hmm. what what happened to you as a person or as a consciousness when you saw that? Did did like did something snap? Were you like so frozen? Is it still hard to accept it? Um, I'm always curious about people who have actually seen these entities. What the hell goes through your mind? Because I don't well, I know if I would crap myself, right? Well, there's there's two. I, I have two of these experiences in my life, and I'll just hit the first one really quickly. I was 18 years old. I was out in the Rosebud in Montana, and I was with a friend uh, in, in the summer, 1978. We had we had uh, Queen Night at the Opera on the, on the A-track and a case of Paps Blue Ribbon and some camping gear on an unmaintained road in the back in the middle of nowhere. And uh, um, we got ambushed by these little, I don't, I don't know what they are, and, and uh, I didn't know what they were then. And, uh, uh, and at that time, there was no iconic little gray alien that everybody was talking about. You know, it was nobody really knew about what the occupant cases were like. This was pre-internet, pre-cell phone. And uh, – uh, and, and in that, in that course of that experience, I had, I, I, I had a very negative experience and, uh, physically distressing 
negative experience I had. Um, I, I, it involved having something shoved through my eye socket and into the back of my head. Okay. Ouch. And, and I, 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 and when I woke up with my friend the next day, we didn't talk about it. There wasn't any discussion. I had sort of some injury, but not really. Uh, I mean, I could feel it. I had a sore spot and I explained it away very quickly in my own head and moved on. I was 18 years old. Life just continues, you know? And then, but, but what I didn't re- re- realize was that there's trauma in all of that. So bringing it to my second year question and the, the experience in 99 that brought me into all of this, um, girlfriend was driving. I was in the passenger seat. My friend was in the back seat. This thing was a mile away and it jumped faster than if I had blinked, I would have missed the movement. It moved so quickly and it came to a dead stop, dead stop lesson. So link from our windshield and then matched the forward speed of our car. They were backwards oriented to their direction of travel. So they were facing us while they were flying backwards and we were driving towards them. That is insane. 55. And so we're as on, it stops, it's still keeping the momentum backwards though. So it approaches it just, you, but follows the speed. Right. There, there was almost no, no lag time between the, 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 the movement, the stop, and then the matching of our speed. Yeah. And you could see the device kind of catching itself a little bit. There was some, you know, corrective activity of the, it was a cylinder. It was probably, I'm guessing it was 35, 40 feet. It, it was, it spanned over three lanes of freeway. Okay. And it was wow. facing, it was facing us broadside and they were looking out of the, the side of the thing and they were operating it. They had their hands on some kind of little panel. I could see the whole interior of the, the device. And then there was them and Susan, who, who had sat next to me at Thanksgiving and watched me ruin dinners over and over again on the UFO obsession thing, was driving. And we were both looking at these three not people standing there, and they were not far away. They were backlit and kind of silhouetted, so you couldn't get all the detail. But there was the, the two on the end seemed to be busy doing something. One one had his hand up and he was working a heads up display and I could see there were images in colors between on the wall between him and me, you know, so his, so his attention was on that. And then the other one had his hands on the, on the panel and then the one in the middle had his hands on the panel, but he was watching us. And, oh, wow. Susan, yeah. and Susan says, Ted, are those meaning Ted are those aliens? And I blurted out, no and slid down into my seat. I wanted to be anywhere other than where I was. I didn't want that experience. I, uh, and there it was. And right after I said no, the one in the middle cocked his head to the side in a very human kind of gesture. He just kind of cocked his head to the side like, oh, really? Uh-huh. And, and um, the, the, the device moved to our side. It, it moved sort of around our, our front end and to the side of us. And then I don't remember anything lo- Time changed. It, it, all, it, it was it, it was a, it was afternoon. It was four thirty in the afternoon in January, so it was pre sunset. And then time changed, and all of a sudden it was dark, and we were down the road a mile or so from there. And the, the device it was back in front of the vehicle above us as we went past, right past the Oakland Police Station, and and on the freeway on eight eighty south, and continued. And then the thing made another maneuver where it ended up behind us. And then it boosted back towards the Oakland Hills and up into the clouds, left a couple of tracers when it left. So that feeling of looking them in the eyes was really kind of scarring. Um, I, I, it was all part of what made me ill. It was the confirmation that, that, you, that not only was I right that I'd had UFO experiences in the past, but that I was going to have more of them. 
and I didn't feel good about it. I wasn't the least bit prepared for dealing with it um, psychologically or, or otherwise. If if I had a weapon in the trunk, I would have begged her to stop the car and I climbed out and put down suppressing fire. Uh, I, I would have just, you know, the, uh, the, the, the thing about the, the, this is it, the most remarkable thing about all of that was when it, when it moved around to the side of us, they were looking at us from the side and maybe 30 feet away or so. And again, basically within the length of their own device from us. And both Ian and I blurted out to Susan, Hey Sue, stop the car. And she said, hell no, if they're going to take us, they're going to do it while we're moving. And then it was right after that, the time just changed. We lost three hours and nine minutes tra traveling a little more than two miles at 55 miles an hour. That while, is Sue, insane. while Sue was driving, she stayed at the wheel. I mean, I, I, there's, there's a big blank spot in all of this, but it begins and ends with her driving and me in the car next to her. And I, I rallied a few minutes, a few moments after that and I had said, hey, Sue, what time is it? She said 7.34. And we'd gone just a little over a mile at that point. So they're temporal effects, and I'm sure it has to do with their technology and the way they bend space around them. There's their, the, the, they're, they're, for the same reason that they didn't die, I'm sure that movement, that jump was quite leisurely from their frame, you know, um, that although it looked like lightning from our side, from their side, they didn't rock on their heels because it was leisurely in their, in their temporal perspective based on the way that their device bend space around it it wasn't that fast and and the and but when you get to the boundary area between these, this device and and local space time there can be temporal effects in our case it was an acceleration of time and, and the, the, the the clock in the car accelerated too i mean everything it was 734 when the situation ended you know and the thing broke away from our car um but while we were very close to it, everything got weird and it was disorienting. I, I had problems keeping my head together and all of that later. I, I remember I was sitting in my, I was living on a sailboat in Alameda Marina. So I, I'd sit on the fantail and drink coffee and twitch and look at the place where this happened because it was right in front of me. And uh, I was a mess. I was not okay. If I'd had a job, I'd have lost it. I lost my girl. You know. Was it the event in of itself or possibly what you've um don't remember after like those few hours it's all of is it that is that is that but does that bug you like would you want to know like before yeah. you die what took place i do same same with that experience i had with i told you about with lester out in the desert um uh i want to know what happened I, I i called lester yesterday actually and i said i was telling him about my this journal i'm working on and less uh I said, hey, Les, did you ever write that down? He said, no. I said, look, you run a paranormal psychology group and you haven't worked this through. I want to know why, because I haven't either. And I want to know what happened. Um, you know, so here, here's somebody who's in the field. He's he's had he's had an experience that everybody kind of imagines that they could have. That it was very disoriented, involved a lot of phenomena, not one. And, and, it, and it was very weird. It was almost outlier. And, uh, uh, and yet he hasn't processed it. He hasn't processed it. And, and Ted, I'm just curious, has he had any like changes to his personality after that event as well? Well, you'd have to ask him. 
I, I, I haven't delved into that. I, I've actually, I, I started, you know, working through what, what I remember from the incident and, and uh, I'm going to send that to him and see what he has to offer in terms of what he remembers. But we both, he actually triggered my remembrance of things that I didn't, I hadn't recalled well before. I sort of recalled, but didn't really. Um, and it was very interesting. I mean, psychologically, uh, there were three of us standing there with our cameras when all this went down. He was the only one that picked his camera up and took pictures. And none of those really turned out well. Uh, and then it was in the middle of the damn night out in the middle of the desert. And the rest of our team was asleep in their vehicles. And when we, I felt like I'd been vacuumed out. I don't even remember what happened after that incident started. I don't remember driving all the way back to the Bay Area. 16 hours. Your, would you, you know? say it's like your consciousness got removed? Or you know, were you just like devoid of that time or any knowledge of that time? I felt like my head had just been vacuumed. It, it, it was like uh, I, what I we didn't think it wake the guys up to tell them about it. We didn't hardly tell them about it the next day. And they, they had driven, in some cases, six, seven hundred miles to be there to, to be part of an observation group, you know, and and I didn't write it up. I went home and didn't do anything with it. I don't hardly remember the drive back. I remember uh, this this other person, Nancy, who had kind of come out of the blue and gone out to the desert with us. And she sat there with me until I drove her all the way back to her car in, in the Bay Area. And uh, I don't recall us hardly talking about what actually happened at all. Um, and then and then we suppressed it. Nobody really talked about it. And then I, I, I talked to Les uh, a year or so ago, and it, and I was like, oh, shit, that's one that I haven't worked through. And uh, um, unless is in the same spot, he hasn't worked it through either. It just was so, it was so blatantly what it was that, that neither of us had really been able to process it. Um, so yeah, that's the, the fact that you've had that happen twice, um, and I, and I don't mean that in, in any disrespect, but it's almost like you're tagged, like they yeah. they got you once. And then they got you again, but each time you're with other people. So they're mm -hmm. getting exposed to that reality as well. Um, and, I'm, and I'm also not necessarily in the same place. I mean, it started when I was a kid in Montana. I had experiences in New York City. I've had experiences in California and I've had experiences here in Hawaii. It has a following nature to it. And um, a lot of the experiencers have said that too. It doesn't matter where they go. It's right. like they know that you're there. That you just know as um, the abductee that they're there for you somehow. Like, but it's always like it's like this, or it seems like this because it's so foreign and disorientating, this, right? This this one in Oakland. I was up when we first saw the thing. Susan was driving. I was to her right. You know, that's the way cars are here. And and um, and we were we were driving and looking east. And I felt the thing before I saw it. And I couldn't see it before I told Susan. Now that's unusual. As I leaned around her and saw it, it was. I already knew to look there when I looked and then as we headed down made our loop past the Oakland army depot and everything, this thing came right down highway 24 on an intercept and it stopped at the Oakland federal buildings. And when we were line of sight facing right at it and about a mile away, all of a sudden whack, it just jumped and stopped right in front of our car. There's eight and a half million people in the Bay area. Okay. And they singled us out from miles away. And just, and I'm just, uh, wondering like do you think once you've acknowledged it once you looked at it do you think there was a connection there at all like do you think it's like um well it's it's part of a continuing story so i i'm assuming that's 
I, I don't think I've been tagged in the sense, in the classic sense of having something embedded in me, but I, but they can find you probably by the dent you make in reality. I, I, no, that's, I would, that's what I meant. Yeah. They seem yeah. to find certain people to have this re reoccurring either from childhoods. Like some people remember being three years old and having yeah. weird creatures yeah. by their beds. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, everybody experiences that I've, I've spoken to, um, or, you know, listened to interviews from always say that, that somehow it doesn't matter where they go. Hell, they I didn't, you. Yeah. The, I encounter the, the encounters I've had. Sometimes I didn't know I was going to be there 15 minutes before I went there. Right. And there, and there they were. So, so how, how, how do we assess that? You know, right. and, and then there are situations that have nothing to do with me. I'm sure this one in Calicacu, I was just. It's just kismet. I was in the right place at the right time. Flew over. It had nothing to do with me. It was something that happened there. Right. And and same thing with this this site I've been studying out in the desert. Um, it, it it happens, and I'm there to see it, which is different than when it singles you out in the middle of a metropolitan area. Uh, so, Ted, I I, I got to ask you if there's somebody listening to this podcast regularly and wants to get active doesn't matter whether they're male female if they're just young or old if they want to start doing this they just need a swift kick in the butt what advice would you give uh that listener uh cult- cultivate your insight and your logic your awareness and do it in a way that's bigger than just adhering to rules of science and objectivity uh incorporate that mindfulness and objectivity into your day-to-day life with everything because not only do you have to deal with with finding good data you got to deal with what the data shows you and if you're not prepared for for what you're going to learn uh you're going to suffer and and there's enough suffering for researchers in this field already so be uh be very careful with your mind and train it train yourself in logic train yourself in, in insight um, and listen very carefully to, to the things you find yourself saying and ask yourself if that's really what you want to be putting out in the world, you know, um, and then find people that you think, uh, carry those ideals. And if they don't abandon them and, and if they bring out your, your observational qualities then then cultivate them, uh, don't be attracted to the, the brightest bulb on the billboard. Don't be attracted to the shiniest object in the room. Uh, a, a lot of the leaders in this field, as much as you may enjoy listening to them talk, don't know what they're talking about and are not in the field to to help resolve this phenomenon, no matter what they tell you. they In their minds, a lot of them already have. Dr. Greer, for example, he's already resolved that this is a great, wonderful thing, and he's here to usher in the, the, the new millennium of aliens and humans. And uh, what is that based on, you know? Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't step up and do that from my own perspective, my own. And experience. I think it's one-sided as well because we don't know if they want communication with us or if they're going to. It's not that they're going to come down as equals. We're not equal at all no. in any shape, or form, technologically and cerebrally. Like they're, I'm sorry, but they're they're not human. They're not. They're very different from us fundamentally. I don't know why they're shaped like us. That's an interesting. I don't know why. You know, bi- bipedal bilateral symmetry humanoid humanoid uh maybe that's a common model in in the universe i don't know but um the they're not human they're not us and and you can and projecting on them will not get you very far uh that's why you know well they're they're just folks and they're here to visit you know it's uh 
It's a bit naive. Yeah, it's based on who? Yeah, <laughs> who says? Well, and, yeah. and, and and then you start asking, you know, like looking at these guys that are that are advocates of sending beam signals out into space to talk to our alien brothers. And the question is, what, what what are you guys going to talk about? Oh, well, we're going to tell them we don't have a centralized government and that we value things this way and that way. And, and all of it's based on the assumption that they can't get here. You know what I mean? It, 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 I don't think it's terribly wise to 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 broadcast your strengths and weaknesses to the universe. No, I think the amount um, of uh, intelligent life that's out there, like the amounts probably teeming in our own galaxy. But once we find out exactly how many much yeah. further advanced technologically um, advanced we're civilization gonna, exists, we're going to, oh, that's going to hit us hard. We're going to want to get, I think we're going to want to get very quiet all of a sudden. And that's yeah. probably the reason we don't hear a lot from the others out there is because it's an ecosystem. You know, and that, that there, you know, you think about that moth out there in the morning, he's drumming away, he's stuck on the water tension of the pond out there, drumming away. Nothing good happens to that moth. You know, yeah. uh, when the when the fish pick up on him, you know, that's it. And you don't want to be drumming like that. Um, nope. And you want to think carefully about just how fragile and how unorganized and how deluded we are as a culture, uh, a global culture how incapable we are of managing a lot of this. That's why I don't have a lot of criticism for any generals that may have this on their desk and are playing it close to their chest. Uh, I have no criticism of that at all. Uh, I just point out that, that these things happen in front of everybody every day. And we can know, we can understand it. If we bring our insight and logic to, to bear, we can figure this thing out. I don't have a, I don't have a message for anyone. Okay. Other than be careful with your head. Don't be fragile understand that reality isn't often isn't the way you thought it was and and adapt quickly to new information you yeah know, we're still um, trying to debate what consciousness is much less mm -hmm. what reality is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly that, that our knowledge I, we've had science for 600 years kind of consistent science for 600 years well you know what's a culture that's had science for six million years what's a light switch look like to a six million year old technology you know we don't know and and Six million is conservative. The chances that they're anywhere close to our age are about zero. Almost any culture that we encounter out there is likely to be much older than ours. And the the and and, and this could go way back. Avi Loeb, you know, uh, head of astronomy at Cornell, right? He wrote a paper on the uh, uh, ambient temperature of the universe during its earliest epoch, and he estimates that at two hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, the, the universe was a nice balmy 73 degrees Fahrenheit. And which means that the conditions for life existed very early on. And the universe has been cooling ever since as it expands with the, the constant and so on. But um, the point being is that we could be dealing with cultures that are billions of years old, and we could be dealing with cultures that have scavenged other cultures that have come and gone for their science and their technology um, and so on. You know, it, it's 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 big. Nobody's really looking at the idea of what what interstellar migration would be like and what the motivations are. They just say it either is happening or it isn't. But nobody's nobody's actually delving into models of how this could take place and what 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 would make special relativity not such a problem for a culture. If, if we consider that it's bounded by it, how would it migrate? You know, based on on all of that. Um, Nobody's really working these things through. I've, I've taken some cuts at it. I'll probably publish some things shortly. But, but uh, uh, th that's the kind of thinking that needs to, to 
synthesize around the subject of these phenomena and what they're about. Um, I, uh, I, I know my stories are just stories. I don't expect anybody to believe me. I haven't ever really stood on a podium and talked about it. Um, I don't tend to, if I, 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 I don't have anything to defend because I, I'm comfortable in my, what my nervous system has told me. But uh, uh, it, there's a reason why I stay in this game and, and, and it has everything to do with the reality of the experiences I've had from my perspective. You know, I, I have trauma and I, I, I think that any person that gets really close to this, these things really needs to do some personal work. Make sure you're okay. Um, there, there's, there, when, when you get rejected by a parent because you've had an experience and they, they consider you a liar, how do you function? Yeah, yeah. I, I've been there, okay? I've lost family over this. I've lost friends over this. I've ruined possible relationships over this. And I've ruined relationships with it. Uh, and it, it, it's because I couldn't, I wasn't going to deny what I had experienced and I wasn't able to modify my behavior around others. Related and to nor me. should you, right? Yeah, well, to a point, to a yeah. point, you know, we, we all have a limited existence. And, and if you let this, this stuff terrify you, just like anything else, like living under the bomb, you know, we all managed to learn how to do it. But, but every day we're, we're, we're living under targeted weapons. Oh, yeah. You know, and yeah. and pointing and at act. ourselves, pointing yeah. at ourselves, pointed yeah. at ourselves. And there they are. And and so can you learn how to do that? And and maybe one day out of five, not not think the, the phrase UFO once. Because I can't. OK, and that's yeah. the that's the damage that this stuff brings that, that you just you get to a point where you can't function. And and and, and then you then you make enemies in the field. You know, there are there are jealousies, there are envies, there are. Uh, there are sick people out there in the field that that, that express their sickness through attacking others. Um, yeah. All of this, uh, it, like I said, take it up off the street. Stay away from social media and ufology. You know, go back to the old ways. You know, contact people directly, talk to them directly, and work your stuff through. Uh, share your data. Um, encourage others to share with you. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm getting this journal of UAP studies together. It, uh, it's all done. The website's finished. I've actually got several contributions of papers already, and I'll be inviting more calls for papers. Anybody that's listening, if you published a paper and it's sitting on your website and you want to have a peer review, you might forward a copy of it to me and see if, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you, uh, we can review our editorial and submission guidelines and, um, and make sure that it fits in. So uh, how, how can people find you, Ted? Like, uh, do you have a site or anywhere that they could submit the stuff to you? Well, yes, uh, I'm going to be putting the Journal of UAP Studies site up shortly. It, the website's done. It's all finished. I have the URL. It's it's ijuaps.org, International Journal of UAP Studies.org. It's not live yet, but it will be within a week or 10 days at the most. And yeah. I, I can be contacted through Ted underscore Rowe at narcat.org or info at narcat.org. Um, and if you're if you're a pilot or you've got a pilot in your life that that uh, has a story that that you think we should hear about, please encourage them to contact us. I, 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 I want those cases. Um, and and if you've got papers you've written or that you're working on and, and you want to make them available for peer review, then then do that. Academic articles, science articles, research papers and general articles all, all are welcome. Uh, there's no money involved. I, it's all out of my own pocket. I'm not asking for any money or it's my baby. And, um, so uh, 
you know, this is all about just trying to do the right thing, uh, trying to do what's needed for the field. Amen. No, I so. fully support you. And with the minute you release anything, if you want to send me the links, I'll gladly post it on the Facebook site as well. Ted, Great. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the birds are making me envious because now it's starting to gray over in my area. But <laughs> it sounds like it's beautiful and warm where you are. 79 so, and partly cloudy every day. So. Oh, you poor bastard. <laughs> it sucks. It, it really sucks. And, 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 but, you know, I've got, I, I live in Alaska too, so I, you know, I, I get my share of Frost at least it's snow. balanced at least it's balanced yeah love it love it all love it all live a and balanced lifestyle yeah try to try to <laughs> thank so. you so much ted and could we have you on the show again yes oh that's fantastic all right have um, a good one anytime take care have a great day,